righteousness. Shall we turn now to the reading of God's word, Nehemiah chapter 5. We're continuing in our series in Nehemiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 13 today. This is the word of the Lord. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax in our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children, as their children. And indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought... I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them and I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you sell, even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. And then I said, What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them even their lands. This day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. That is the word of the Lord. When Christians abuse their own. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will remember that Jerusalem's walls were destroyed and the Jews were sent into captivity in 586 and earlier in 605 B.C., Because they sinned grievously against God. They corrupted his worship. And they abused the widows, orphans and foreigners. But God permitted the Jews to return. And after their return. They started to repair the walls of Jerusalem. But troubles came in the form of the half-breed Sanballat. The half-breed Jew he was. Who hated the true children of God. And the worship of God. And then there was Tobiah the Ammonite another enemy of God's people, and Geshem the Arab. And along with that were the Ashdodites, one of the tribes of the uh, Philistines. And then surrounded nations joined in to oppose God's people. Lots of enemies around. Sanballat and his growing confederacy 
first started to mock the people of God as a way of dissuading them or stopping them from rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And the walls were essential. The walls were essential because it was for the worship of God that it would go on uninhibited. It was also essential for the Jews, for their security and for their prosperity. And in order to respond to this growing threat, which moved from verbal threats to threats of violence and murder, Nehemiah armed and trained the people of God to be able to work and to fight at the same time. And you think that's good. That's how it should be done. They were ready to face the enemy. But the troubles were only beginning. There were troubles not only from the outside. There were internal troubles as well. And those are often more difficult. I often say that the greatest enemy we have. Greatest enemy is often inside of the church of Jesus Christ. And in this case the enemy on the inside started to abuse the weak. Brothers start taking advantage of brothers. So the rebuilding of the walls was beginning to stall. Hear about this abuse of Christians by other Christians today. Our headings are three. Very simple. There was a weakness. There was trouble in the camp. There was a warning. Stop doing what you are doing. And then third, the work that was involved in remedying this problem, how the people responded. Our goals are that recognizing all the Lord did for you, that you will not abuse your brothers, being a hindrance to him, so the work of kingdom building can continue. First we look at the weakness that Nehemiah and the Jews experienced, troubles in the camp. So in the midst of repairing Jerusalem's walls, so the people could worship again, so they could gain that safety they need, so they can get economic prosperity, an ugly problem, a very ugly problem, raised its ugly head. Some Jews used this opportunity to become loan sharks and charge excessive interest from Jews who had mortgaged their possessions in order to get money so their family could eat while they were doing volunteer work. They were working to repair the walls. But God had made this clear in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19. He said, you shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. They didn't care about God's law, And so they abused their own. These Jews who cried out against the abusing brothers, they were not lazy people. In fact, you are told if you're lazy, you shouldn't eat. You don't work, you don't eat. And it's okay to watch people starve if they are lazy and refuse to work. But this wasn't the case here. They simply wanted to see Jerusalem's walls rebuilt. And they were volunteering their time and volunteering their resources until they ran out. And now their babies didn't have food to eat. So they had mortgaged their houses. And then they had mortgaged their lands. So they could get some money to support themselves at this extraordinary time. But these unscrupulous people didn't think too much about them. Didn't care about what they were doing. 
And what is it that they really didn't care about? They didn't care about Messiah coming. Because the walls were being rebuilt in order to provide that place from which Jesus would come to die for the sins of the world. This was the most important event in history when Jesus would come. But they were thinking, I can make some extra shekels. I could make some extra bucks. And it doesn't matter who I take advantage of. Now these Jews, according to verse 4, these poor Jews were not, on, not only had no money of themselves to feed their families, they even had to borrow money to pay the king's tax. Remember, a conquering nation would exact a tax that was paid by every adult in the land they conquered. And it was an onerous tax from the Medo-Persian king. But the Jewish businessmen didn't care. They, uh, you know, it's interesting that Solomon, who was one who earlier abused people in his life, he understood this and the consequences. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, he said, Then I return and consider all the oppression that is done under the sun. He was really looking in a mirror. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On, one, on the side of the oppressors there is power... But the people have no comforter. How sad God's own people were abusing each other. And it didn't stop there. You see, things got so bad, they not only had to mortgage their property and their land. They not only had to get money to pay the king's tax. They end up having to sell their children into slavery in order to survive, to pay their debts. And things were not just bad with that. Israel and Judah in particular was undergoing a long period of famine. Remember the first time the people came back during the days of Haggai. The people became excited and started rebuilding their houses and all. But they ignored the temple of God. So God brought a famine upon them that lasted many years. And that famine is still continuing during the days of Nehemiah. God had said to them, you want to build your houses with panel walls and you want to build a second house, but you ignore my house, then I will let the wind blow and dry out your grain. You'll put money in your pocket, but I'll put a hole in it so it will be lost. You'll drink, but you'll never be satisfied. So that was still continuing. With all the problems they had, the last thing they needed was abusive leaders and you know these things occur all over the world. They continue even today. If you want to see an interesting picture of this, Google Pakistan and the brick kilns. And you will see how many Christians there have been enslaved by Muslims to pay off debts. They have sold their entire family literally into slavery. And some are working for 20, 30 years to pay off a small debt. And it's understandable a little bit more when the pagan who doesn't know or love the true God, when he does it. But when the people of God did it, it was savage. So there were great troubles in the camp. That's our first point. What do you learn from this? First of all, the love of money could cause even the closest relative to become a monster. So many relationships have been damaged over a little bit of money. So many siblings don't talk to each other because of that. So many people have been fired from the job for stealing. Greed is everywhere. Even much of what is called capitalism today. 
Remember, even capitalism can be a wicked thing if there's capitalism without Christ. Capitalism without Christ is tyranny. It's abusive. One of the problems of the rich is that they often think they're better because they have money. They think somehow God is blessing them or they think they're smarter than others or that they are better. The truth is, there are wicked poor and there are wicked rich. That's not the standard by which we uh, we gauge blessings of God. But think of what money and the love of money can do. The love of money, the Bible says, is the root of all kinds of evil. The second thing to remember is this. Your religion and your economics can never, ever be separated. You can't say, this is just business so I can abuse people because that's allowable by law. It may be legal, but it may not be moral. So don't separate your religion from your economics. The principles you use, even when you sell your house, make sure you're honest about what you do. Third, there's nothing wrong in being rich or in being poor. Just don't get rich by crushing other people. And by the way, some people are just satisfied with having a little. Look at some of the countries in the world, a place like Dominican Republic. They live longer than Canadians. They're generally happier than Canadians. And they have very little. So wealth is not a gauge of, uh, of happiness. But there's nothing wrong in being rich. There's nothing wrong in being poor. But remember this. The Bible says if you abuse the poor, you insult their maker. And God will hold you accountable. But remember this final lesson. There are many more important things in life than a prophet. You are to care for God's children. Why? Because you have the same father. The same father in heaven. Remember also, you have the same mother. The the church of Jesus Christ. You're part of the same family. You're of the same blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. That's what makes this so important. To remember, don't take advantage of others. There's a lot more important things in life than making money. Malachi chapter 2 verse 10 says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of our fathers? We are one in Christ. Let that be the guide of how you care for one another. Now that's the weakness. What did the uh, governor Nehemiah do? Troubles in the camp, weakness in the camp, he said, here's the warning. Stop doing this. Nehemiah, seeing how selfish, how greedy some Jews were against their own people, their own brothers, even allowing the little ones to starve and go into slavery, thought about it a great deal. Think about what that verse says. You look at verse 7. After serious thought. He didn't react impulsively. He thought about God's law. He thought about the principles of God's law. He thought how he had to respond. And he had to reflect upon the problems of the Jewish mind. And one of the Jewish, one of the things that is ingrained in the Jewish psyche is the idea of making profit. Now we often talk about that in a negative way in our modern society. That Jews can be abusive and they pinch pennies and they take advantage of workers and all of that. The fact is that was nothing new. That's what sent them into slavery in 722 BC when the Assyrians came. 
They were wealthy, prosperous nation, but they were abusing the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners. It was one of the reasons God sent them into captivity. In 605 and then again in 586 BC, when the Babylonians came. That's exactly what the Jews were doing. The nation was prosperous again. What happened in 70 AD? It was exactly the same thing. The Jews loved money. And so they were willing to crush ordinary people. Remember how Jesus chased them out from the temple? Business was so thriving, they went even into the temple to do business. By doing that, they were hating God's people and crushing them. If you read the Apostle James, and James, he talks about those who would abuse their workers. And that has often been part of the way, that cultural thing of crushing others so they could get rich. And he might give good thought to this. And this was a distraction from his work, wasn't it? They had to focus on rebuilding the walls, but now they have to deal with this problem of abusing the poor. But he had to stop and address it, because it was important. These people were lining their own pockets on the backs of volunteers. And the Jews were not allowed to exact interest from their brothers who had become poor because of providence. And was this an egregious sin? Absolutely. The Jewish people, who themselves were farmers, needed their children to help them to pay off their debts. But now their children were sold into slavery, so they couldn't get their children back, they couldn't get their land back, they couldn't get their houses back. They were being treated as slaves. So Nehemiah acted. He did something very unique. Because it was a public sin, he called for a public assembly to rebuke the abusers. And this is what God called Judah to do. In Ezekiel chapter 14, uh, 16, verse 49, earlier than this time, God said, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and the abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. This was the problem the Lord was calling them back to remember. Also Nehemiah did not delay. He thought about it seriously and then responded and confronted the transgressors. Nehemiah showed the ridiculousness of the exploitation. First he said, look... When the people were in captivity in Babylon and in Medo-Persia, you who were rich, you gave your money to buy them out of slavery. And now, when they came back, you were selling them into slavery or buying them yourselves as slaves. Do you see how ridiculous your action is? He wasn't wimpy at all about confronting them about their sin. He wasn't concerned that they wouldn't give money to the temple. He spoke the truth and confronted them in their sin. He wanted the people to realize their foolishness and their abusive uh, policy. And what was their response? Verse 8 says, Then there was silence and found nothing to say. He showed them the ridiculousness of their actions. But then he goes on further. Verse 9, What you're doing is not good. Nehemiah then directly warned them, 
that they should stop doing that and rather walk in the fear of God. And that's the beauty of this. You say you're wrong, but this is what you must do. It's not just yelling at your kids. It's telling them what they ought to do instead. Both are necessary that you will call their attention to their sin and give them the solution to the problem. So he said, you must fear God. Should you not walk in the fear of God? And this refers not just to holy reverence when you come into church and you behave well. But this refers to all of God's law. To have reverence for all of God's law. Including the one that you shall not steal. And you shall honor your father and your mother. And you shall not covet. All of God's law. That's the fear of God. And when the Jews exploited the poor. They were not walking in the fear of God. And what was the consequence of that? And that's the bigger picture here. God's name was being shamed among the nations. And they would say what kind of God they served. That would watch the rich abuse the poor in such a way. And hinder the work of the kingdom from proceeding. That's the bigger thing, isn't it? It's the fear of God. Their God, their covenant God. The one who had given them the pictures of the coming Savior. That they could trust in that Savior and be saved from their sins. They didn't care. You know, it's like a spoiled child who complains because his father gave him the... And they were, There was a, a video of this. Of a child, a young lady in front of a dealership. When she got, I believe it was a, a Ferrari. And she started screaming and yelling at her father because it was the wrong color. What a shame that child brought to her father. Maybe the father is to be blamed because he didn't raise her well. Otherwise it would have been an old Toyota Corolla or something. He didn't care. Because he just tolerated his rude daughter. People who were around though recorded it. And it was a shame. And that was what was happening here. This is a shameful thing. That happened to God. Where people mocked him. So what can we learn then from the second point? As he rebuked them. He said stop doing this. Change your way. First of all, it's okay to lend money at the profit. There's nothing wrong in doing so if the person borrowing money will use it to make a profit. If he's investing in a business, it's okay to charge interest in that. Banking is a legitimate uh, business. But if someone were desperate and needed to feed his family, then you were not to charge him interest Maybe beyond the rate of inflation. Because inflation is the government stealing. The person lending should not be punished for it. It is abusive to lend money to the desperate poor for profit. So make sure you understand that part. Second, the fear of the Lord endures forever. That is God's law. It can never change. You are called to fear God. The one who fears God puts his trust in Jesus Christ. And then loves his law. And makes his law his study all the day long. And even at night. Learning how to keep God's law. Knowing that in the keeping of God's law. There is great reward. 
And if you keep God's law, if you fear God, you would not hinder his people from doing their kingdom work. Third, pray for your elders to be wise in dealing with internal conflicts. We need God's wisdom to keep Christ's church poor, uh, pure. If the elders don't act, shame comes in the name of Christ. Reproach comes in the name of Christ. Because the world would like nothing more than to say, look at what's happening in the church. If someone's committing adultery and the elders say, well, we will pretend we don't know about it. And then others from the outside, they look and say, look at what's happening in that church. That's no different from the outside. Elders are bound before God to act. Pray that they will have the courage to act. Do it in a wise way like Nehemiah did, thoughtfully. But understand that they have to act in order to save the name of Christ from reproach. But rather, that praise will come to his name. And uh, fourth, be ready to denounce those who abuse the weak or hinder God's kingdom work. The same Lord died for both of you. And you have a kingdom to build. And therefore you must work together. And when you see someone not doing that, you have an obligation to speak up. But now we come to that interesting point, the response of the people. First of all, we learn there's a weakness then. There's trouble in the camp though. Rich people are abusing the poor, making them sell even their children into slavery. So Nehemiah looks at them, thinks about it, warns them, threatens them. Like a good leader would. Both encouragement and threats. Then the people respond. The work that they did. Nehemiah's first action was to set a good example. And he said in verse 10, I also with my brethren and my servants am lending money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. He gave himself as a good example. He and his close brothers, the word there is servants, but it means young men. So people who were assisting him and they were lending money to the poor people without charging any interest. And there's no better way to correct others than by setting a good example. Christians don't operate on do as I say, not, a, not as I do. That's why elders can do simple things serving the community. It doesn't mean that because they're elders, they're not able to do menial work. Same thing is true in the home. A father can learn how to do dishes and laundry and take care of babies as well and helping. Setting a good example of caring and helping was essential, and that's what he did. But then he said to the Jews, Stop taking interest in the poor and restore what they held as collateral. See, no one was allowed in Israel to hold as collateral what was essential to the borrower's survival. And we often see the example of the coat. The coat that someone would use to sleep in the cold desert nights could never be taken as collateral. You'd lend them money, but you could never take their coat because that was essential. But now they had to give their children as collateral. And then they were being charged an extraordinary amount. Verse 10 says, also a hundredth of the money. And you think, well, what is that? One percent? Well, that was one percent per month. So it was 12 percent per annum. And there was no inflation. And 12% suddenly they would have to pay to borrow money for food. 
Imagine the cycle that starts and how difficult that is. Just two weeks ago, he had to send some money for someone in India who had borrowed money, a pastor, had borrowed money during COVID lockdowns. And he had borrowed maybe 14,000 rupees, which is not a lot of money, just a couple hundred US dollars. And uh, when I talked to him recently, it was up to over 22,000. The interest was extraordinary, and there's no way he could pay that money. And that abuse could destroy people. We can understand a Hindu man doing that because he has no fear of God. Christians were doing that. 12% per annum. And the people said, we will stop. We will restore it, verse 12. The abuse of Jews restored the lands and the vineyards and the olive groves. And the interest they had charged to the poor. But it didn't end there. Look at how this went stronger. The abusive Jews then took an oath before God. Because Nehemiah called for one. That they would do as they promised. You know when you're emotional. You kind of forget what you promised to do. You see Christmas times coming. I'm sure they're starting to sell Christmas trees someplace at Costco. They do that. And people get emotional. And, and you see the kids in Africa. And, and you want to make a pledge to send money there. And you say, I'm going to help the poor come January. And then January comes and you sort of forget. Nehemiah wasn't taking any chances on an emotional response. He called the priest and said, we're going to take an oath. You're going to make an oath before God. That you will pay back all that you said that you would. He called God to witness. That's what makes it so strong. That's what makes it strong when you get married. You don't walk away from your marriage when you have some troubles. You work them out because you took an oath before God. But then it didn't even stop there. Nehemiah went further and pronounced a curse on anyone who abused his brother after this. He had this thing where he, he would shake his clothing out. And say whatever dust is here has fallen out. And say may God cause you to be shaken out. If you break this promise. It was like a double oath. Saying you have got to help each other. And not hinder each other. Because the work you are doing is so great. We're not going to take any chances. Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt. Worship needs to be restored. Security needs to be in place. Prosperity for the kingdom was essential. And he said we're going to do this on double oath. And then the Jews responded. Yes. On the second oath as well. That God should curse them. If they broke that promise. Sadly they did. And then they were rejected. That's really what opened the door for the Gentiles. That's when Jerusalem fell and God sent judgment upon them in such a severe way that their streets flowed with blood. When Titus and Roman general and others went to Jerusalem in AD 70, they surrounded the city and watched them starve where women ate their own children because they broke this covenant. They became abusive again. That's how serious this is. Sometimes we can read these and think, what a nice story, everyone's happy. You have to follow, do the follow-up and see what happens. 
let's consider four lessons here. First of all, don't take advantage of your fellow Christians. Don't cause a hindrance to them. You know why? You have the same goal. That goal is the glory of Christ through the building up of his kingdom so that praise will go up to him. And you have covenanted in your heart and with your lips to do this. That's why even when babies are baptized, the congregation vows to help the parents to raise that child in the fear of the Lord. The task is too great for us to get distracted and to become selfish. That's why the oath was given. So don't take advantage of fellow Christians. Second, God promises are good, or sorry, we should say it this way. Good promises are good things, but good performances are the best. That's what God expects, not just talk. This is what I will do, but this is what I am doing. Performances are more essential than just the promises. Third, deliver the poor from his troubles when it is in your ability to do so. When you're able to pay someone a fair wage, make sure you pay someone a fair wage. That is your business. Psalm 82 verse 4 says, Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. That's your obligation. Now you say, well, uh, no one is trying to borrow money from me. Most of us have a few pounds that we could shed. We seem reasonably well fed and our children too. But this is not simply about that. This is doing anything that would hinder others from playing their part in kingdom work. And then think about the situation all around the world. Think of ministers who can't preach because they're struggling to feed their own families. I received a heartbreaking report from a pastor in Ukraine this past week of the struggles he and his wife are facing, former students of ours in Ukraine. Many places where people struggle. But what about us even here? What about someone who has a different color of skin? Do you ignore him? By ignoring him, you are not able to work together for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. How about someone you don't invite to your house? Maybe they don't do things the way you do everything. So you sort of not, you're not friendly to them to support them. That is a hindrance, just like the Jews, the rich Jews abused the, the poor. Maybe he's not as clean cut. Maybe somebody's life, and they come from a life where they've got tattoos all over their faces and maybe they have the damage of using methamphetamine on their bodies and they don't look right. They don't look like they're cut from the same cloth as the rest of us. If you avoid them, you don't encourage them, you are hindering the work of Christ. If you don't encourage each other, Someone does something good and you see them doing well. Or maybe they're struggling. Maybe you need to encourage them a little bit in what they're doing. Keep it. Don't give up. Keep studying. Keep evangelizing. I know you've been teaching someone for a year. Don't stop. Let God's spirit work in their hearts. 
That will encourage them, not hinder their work. That will bring praise to God. Or maybe you're unfairly criticizing them from their work. You know, there's nothing harder on elders and pastors than to be unfairly criticized. And maybe they have a bad sermon one week. Some of us have more. Give us a break. Encourage us. Otherwise you hinder the work. I know a lot of pastors, very thin-skinned. You make one comment about them and they're hurt for weeks. It's, it's, we're humans. They're vessels of clay. Encourage us in our work. Because all of this, if you do anything that hinders the kingdom, remember AD 70 and what God did to Jerusalem. You see, his glory and honor is not something that he takes lightly. The worst judgment in the scripture is reserved for those who harmed the worship of God. Not murderers, not adulterers, as terrible as those sins are, but those who corrupted the worship of God. Let's conclude. In the midst of the great work of rebuilding Jerusalem's walls, a nasty thing occurred. Jewish loan sharks abused the volunteers, causing them to lose their land, to lose their homes lose their children, and ultimately to lose their future. So Nehemiah rebuked them for the wrong they did and instructed them to change. They repented, and they showed their repentance. And that was a good time for Judah. Troubles left. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, the enemy outside is powerful and increasing. We've learned about Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab... The Ashdodites, the surrounding nations, they are powerful. We have them today around us. We have an anti-Christian state. We have anti-Christian businesses. The church then doesn't need internal battles. Christians need to be on the same side. The same side in the congregation, the same side in the federation, the same side in Christendom. So let us learn... Not to be a hindrance, but rather to care for each other. To fight for each other. We don't always agree on everything. That's okay. We support each other. Why? Because we're blood brothers in Christ. We pray for each other. Yes, if we disagree on small issues, that's all right. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're brothers in Christ. As long as this world exists, there will be sin and disagreements. But we must work together with other believers for the common good to advance Christ's glory. And finally, we may have troubles in our church, but they're only minor. One day, all Christians will be in perfect unity. And we'll all understand each doctrine correctly. Everyone will be reformed in heaven. But it's much more than that. If you are not a Christian, you will spend eternity in hell with the realization that you have to bear your own sins. The church is not perfect. None of us is. But if you're not in the church of Jesus Christ, if you don't have God as your father and the church as your mother, you have no way out of hell. But there's a way out that's available. Ask God to make you his child because Jesus died for sinners.
Let us pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your words today. Thank you for the reminder of how we need to care for each other and not be a hindrance putting things that are stumbling blocks, maybe by what we do and maybe by what we don't do, when we don't encourage the weak or when we throw stumbling blocks in front of the ones who are working. We know, Lord, that that hurts the cause of Christ. Have mercy upon us that we will work in unity for the good of our Savior, to whom all praises belong, now and forevermore. Amen.